Bonnie, can you present your case? Okay. This is a woman I've only seen four times. She's a new patient to me, a 26-year-old single preschool teacher who presented to her primary care with two to three months of right hip pain. He did films and a bone scan which showed metastatic disease predominant lytic lighting up in her right hip, right SI joint, right iliac bone, and a bit in her sternum nothing in her spine. With a diagnosis of metastatic disease, she was sent to me, and that was our first visit. On my physical exam, she had an easily palpable four-centimeter breast mass. We started her on some pain control, anticipating radiation for this very painful hip. We sent her to radiation and got her breast biopsied as well as a metastatic workup. The metastatic workup included an MRI and some additional films of the hip. Her biopsy returned on her second visit. She had a Grade 2 infiltrating ductal breast cancer, ER 80%, PR 0%, HER2 0 by IHC. On that visit, she was started on Zometa. We drew a circulating tumor cell, serum for CTC, continued with pain control. We didn't get any further than that because the pain became so difficult to manage. Now with intractable nausea and vomiting, she was admitted to the hospital. On that visit, which was about one week ago, we tried some flexoral and some steroids, and it was pretty tough. The pain was more impressive than her MRI and bone scan would have suggested. And on that visit during the hospitalization, I started her on tamoxifen, and she started radiation to her hip. What was her state of mind? You know, it was interesting. She's 26, very bright, articulate, single woman who lives alone. She has a sister who's 30, and to meet the two of them, you could not mistake these girls as being sisters. My patient is somewhat guarded, kind of keeps her emotions close, while her sister is very gregarious. And it was a little bit, for me, I was having trouble connecting and being a comparatively younger doc, I would have thought she and I would have just clicked and we weren't. So much so that I met with her parents separately. Her father is very data-driven, very pragmatic, and her mom is more emotional but very clear to tell me, I can only deal with what's going on today. Don't even talk with me about tomorrow. But when I asked her about her daughter, she said, give her time. All through her growing up years, she was always the girl who would wait, very quiet, and when she's ready, she will open up. But make no mistake, she knows exactly what's going on. So I trust the mom, and I'm waiting for her, giving her space, waiting for her to open up. So I don't exactly know where my patient's head is at. She's very guarded. Is she still in the hospital? No. She spent four days in the hospital. She vomited on Percocet and Dilaudid. I put her on a PCA. We got a fentanyl patch, which she did okay on the steroids. The bitterness of the pill vomited them up immediately. A little flexoral, and she did great. A little range of motion, and she's out of the hospital. On the fourth visit, her pain was better. She was on the tamoxifen for now three or four days and doing okay, except now she got her period and her emotions are crazy. And now she's, I can't believe I have my period and yada, 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 and I can't deal with this. And that's where I am right now. So Steve, how would you be thinking through this situation? Yeah, this is, you know, it's a little bit unusual. We do sometimes see these patients that present with metastatic disease, but it's not nearly like we used to. And it's kind of interesting. I don't know who she was getting her care from before. Somebody ends up doing bone scans and things, but they may never have examined her. 
previously defined a breast mass, as you said, it was readily palpable. You know, you start getting scans and you haven't actually done a physical exam, but you did. The goal is going to be palliation. So Meadow's good. You put her on tamoxifen. This is somebody that I would really think about ovarian suppression. I would put her on Zolodex and I would start that now. Zolodex plus tamoxifen. I don't say you need to really be giving her chemotherapy at this point. You might get a pretty good response with hormonal therapy, but I would do ovarian suppression tamoxifen. I don't know if it's faster, but it might it'll get rid of the period issue for you so and I would really try to see if we could get a hormonal response in her but you know long term uh, this is a pretty ominous situation she doesn't have mets other than bone mets so. no her metastatic workup was negative including other sites via a PET scan which is another story calcium was normal genetic stuff isn't back I and mean, she has no family history but very few female family members you know, if she's BRCA negative, our geneticist would probably test her for P53, being that she's so very young. Rowan, how would you be thinking about this? And what about the management in general of the premenopausal patient with ER-positive metastatic disease and the issue of ovarian suppression versus ophorectomy? I agree with Steve in terms of the approach. Maybe one other thing before that's not readily available, but it's a very intriguing trial, which is the high-dose abandronate. There's data published for prostate cancer patients with bone pain. Abandronate, apparently IV doesn't have the same nephrotoxicity that some of the other bisphosphonates do. They gave three consecutive days and saw this tremendous decrease in bone pain. And they had, it was like the majority of the patients were off narcotic analgesics with just three days of injection. So it's just almost like, and Julie Grillo has a trial going in breast cancer patients. And so if somebody couldn't be controlled, that's really kind of interesting, something that might be available, I mean, in some context. So that's probably coming. That would be a great thing for these kinds of patients to be able to give, like we used to give high-dose estrogen to prostate cancer patients, for instance, and saw remarkable changes in bone pain. In terms of the management, I would agree with trying to give ovarian suppression to this patient. We had that small randomized trial, 299 patients, GnRH analogs, tamoxifen, or the combination. There was a survival advantage to the combination. So some of us that like that say that's enough, and are you going to really get an answer from soft and text? So I, I would do that. What I like to do in these younger individuals would be start off with GnRH analogs to see if they have just a terrible time in terms of menopausal symptoms. Because if they do, then you might say maybe there's alternatives to consider. If they don't, then I think going ahead with oophorectomy is a reasonable thing. We really have to twist the arm of our surgeons to get them to do a oophorectomy, even in this setting, unless the patients are BRCA1-2 positive, because they think the ovaries staying in are really an important thing, even in this setting. So if the patient didn't have much trouble with generate analogs after a couple months, I would try to see if you can get the gynecologist very simple procedure the way they can do yeah, it now. Our gynecologists will be okay. I think yeah. what will be hard is telling a woman so soon after the diagnosis that we're going to remove her ovaries because I'm saying a lot when yeah, I say that sure. to her. Yeah, I mean, this young woman's dealing with a lot. I yeah. mean, this yeah. is a sudden onset. All of a sudden, her life has changed forever. She may die from this. you got a lot of things to deal with. That's one of the nice things about doing, you know, a drug like Zolodex on a monthly basis. I mean, you know, your goal somewhere is to try to get her to oophorectomy, but I think yeah. that you're a lot yeah. more ready to do that than she is. So, you know, it's kind of a bridge to oophorectomy. I use Zolodex rather than Lupron and so on. I think Zolodex is the one approved drug. I do it on a monthly basis, not 
long term. There's some evidence you don't get complete ovarian suppression with some of these other drugs. And so I go with the one that's really proven in premenopausal women. And, you know, I think it's not a real comfortable injection. It's a subcutaneous abdominal injection. And so sometimes after a few of those, the patients say, okay, I'm ready for the oophorectomy. But you've got to get her a little time to try to adjust to this new situation, which is really fairly horrific in a 26-year-old. Now, that's a really important point that Steve made is the business about duration. Zolodex couldn't get an approval for every three-month preparation. Lupron has never shown it's able to suppress estrogen levels in premenopausal women. Suppressing testosterone in a 78-year-old male, a little bit different with every four-month injection is a little bit different than trying to suppress ovarian function in this 26-year-old woman. So really, if you're treating with three or four-month regimens, you're probably not doing much. So Steve, what about the issue of fulvestrant in the premenopausal patient who has ovarian suppression? Are you comfortable with that? Yeah, I think we just don't have a lot of data. You recently interviewed John Robertson, who's sort of been the one surgical oncologist that pursues fulvestrant over year after year after year and has some interesting data. But there's just not a lot of data. Certainly it's not indicated in premenopausal women. If they've got ovarian suppression, you can do it. And somebody like this, if you had suppressed ovarian function, she had an oophorectomy, then I think somewhere along the line you could consider using fulvestrant. But I think at the moment it would be tamoxifen or an AI coupled with ovarian suppression. The other issue in her is you ordered circulating tumor cells. So why did you do that and how does that help you? Well, if it helps me, I don't know. I order them a lot. I don't know why. <laughs> I ordered them in her because I only have bone disease to follow and her tumor marker is normal. And I thought this might give me, I have another woman who had an 837 CTC difficult disease to follow, and my next one was 47, and my next one was four. And I felt really good being able to tell her that. Did she get better? Yeah, but as I said, it's so difficult to follow her image-wise, and she had no symptoms. So it was at least something that was good for me, and at least from between the ears, good for her. Likewise, I'm thinking I'm going to need everything I got to help her. And if I get a high number, and it's hard to follow her with just this bone disease, if I can treat her and she drops, it'll be good. How's that, no? Steve? No, I think it's a pretty good answer. I, you know, I think it's one of these tests, again, that's available. It can be done. Some people do it. I haven't seen the kind of clear-cut data that would allow me to sort of you know, work this into a routine kind of practice. But you made a pretty good argument. I would use tumor marker pretty much like the same. That's something ASCO doesn't agree with. But 70 to 80% of the time, the CA2729 will be elevated. You, know, you can tend to follow that. You have to use some clinical judgment with it. So I think it's kind of like that. Rowan, do you use this test routine? No, we don't. And I think it's interesting. I mean, in, in other cancers, we don't really know that doing on-time attempts to find progression and then switching therapy makes a difference. Now, we don't even have that evidence in breast cancer, but that might be a disease where it would matter. Having said that, there's this issue about things that are in the New England Journal, and then you don't hear from them for years afterwards. And we had one of those would be bone marrow involvement with tumor. That was in kind of New England Journal, and then kind of silence, you know, for a decade. And so circulating tumor cells are a little bit right on the brink in that category. It was New England Journal, and now we're going, now we're going, we're waiting for the second thing. And usually, if something really works, you're going to hear a second thing. And we haven't heard the second thing yet. So I'm a little, I haven't used it yet. With these new things, we've seen enough of them come to a certain point and then kind of drift away in breast cancer. So I haven't used it. Using it. It's a reasonable choice, though, I mean, as a potential marker. 
Yeah, see, so for late disease, you know, I've kind of labeled this the kiss of death test, because if it goes up, then the patient dies in a very short period of time. But I don't think we know what happens to this kind of patient. Yeah, probably I mean, if you looked at tumor marker in this kind of patient, frequently it'll go up for a few months and then start to come down as she responds to hormonal therapy. So a rising tumor marker in this setting of hormonal therapy wouldn't bother me at all, unless it just sort of continues to rise over a long period of time. So if your test comes back and the next time you repeat it, it's up, I don't think we know what that means. And I wouldn't stop doing what you're doing because, you know, her pain's starting to get better. She gets on getting on the Zometa. You've got her on hormonal treatment. I would go on the clinical grounds and not the use of the test. So I think that's kind of where we are. New England Journal, but so what? <laughs> <laughs>